Hello everyone and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. This is the podcast for professionals working within and those interested in the temperature controlled supply chain in the UK and around the world. My name is Shane Brennan and I'm the Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. And welcome to part two of our conversation with Emily Rees. I'm really chuffed that Emily actually agreed to speak to us on this podcast because in a time when everyone's talking about trade policy, Emily is a genuine bona fide expert. A senior fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy and a director of her own uh, trade consultancy, Trade Strategies. So the first conversation I had with Emily, um, which hopefully you will have listened to, and if you haven't, go back and take a listen, was about Brexit, where we are right now um, and what's coming in the next weeks ahead. The second part of the conversation is um, really even really compelling. We get into the issues around um, what does Brexit mean for the UK and the world and what are the trade options available to a now independent UK outside the single market. And she's got some really, really insightful things to say about things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, uh, the future prospects of a deal with the United States. And we talk about some of the kind of big picture issues, most notably climate change and how that will impact on the trade policy decisions of the UK and the rest of the major economies around the world. So before we dive into that, just my regular reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on any of the major podcasting platforms. Um, and most of all, please can you leave us a review um, and spread the links to this podcast to other colleagues and friends um, who you think might be interested. The more we can spread the word, the more we can get really important conversations like this in front of more people across our industry. So here we go with part two of my conversation with Emily Reese. I wanted to, Emily, move it on to ask you about, um, you know, your broader expertise and knowledge, which is obviously the UK applied this week to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership or whatever it's specifically called now. Um, what is that and what does that potentially mean for the UK? So CPTPP is a large free trade agreement uh, with the uh, Asia-Pacific region, which had been originally negotiated by the US or let's say with a big push from the US, right, in order uh, to contain the rise of China in that region. Um what happened is that when the Trump administration uh, took office, um, it pulled out of its own agreement and the remaining 11 members decided to move forward, rename it and call it CPTPP. Now, um, when it comes to the UK wanting to accede to CPTPP, um, it's an interesting development. Um, it won't necessarily be a replacement for your biggest market at your doorstep. There are questions of geography and and, and gravitational pull uh, that work in international trade. However, um, it, it does provide what I like to call sort of the, the framework contract um, that will allow the UK then to pursue um, conversations and bilateral agreements, particularly in the area of food, with the other 11 members of uh, the CPTPP. Um, now, um, some of those negotiations are already ongoing because they're happening as, uh, uh, let's say, either part of the rollover agreements, um, negotiations or sort of negotiations to modernize the rollovers, uh, which were concluded um, uh, at the end of last year. Uh, so I, I'm thinking here of Canada and Mexico, for instance. So you could imagine that um, 
if the UK were to become uh, a member of the CPTPP, that um, a number of uh, those bilateral SPS agreements could uh, be um, could could move forward pretty swiftly with some countries such as Canada and Mexico. Now, what it doesn't do is it's not particularly prescriptive in terms of food standards. So I think that we have to be um, quite uh, rational when it comes to CPTPP. What it does is it says that no country uh, within those 11 members or 12, if the UK were to join, automatically accepts the equivalence of the food safety standards of any of the other countries. But it says that if if two countries within the CPTPP would like to arrange for equivalence, then they can do so under the agreement. I mean, as an aparte, you can you can organize a, an SPS equivalence agreement without a free trade agreement, but um, it is advantageous to do it within, especially when we're looking at um, reducing um, tariffs and uh, and either negotiating advantageous quotas um, uh, um, with with other partners, which might be able to go beyond what your current trading terms are. Right, that's really that's really helpful. I mean, that that's, that that helps me understand it a lot better than than I did. Because um, I guess because we, and I guess tactically, sort of, sort of political tactics here. I guess there's a bit of a hope that the that the Biden administration will re accede to the to the to the thing they started to create. Um, and that, that this is a one of the ways in which the UK might get closer to a trade deal with the United States. Am I right in thinking that? So I, I, I would I find much of the discussion in the UK with regards to the US slightly misguided. Mm-hmm. Um, the Biden administration f- until now is very much giving us the same indications as Brussels is uh, remarkably in saying we're not interested in more liberalization we want to enforce the trade agreements we already have Um, and so in that regard I don't think that from a Washington perspective negotiating a free trade agreement with the UK will be up in the top priorities Um, and um, likewise um, uh, there is no plan for the UK, US to rejoin CPTPP anytime soon. So I think that if anything, actually, we've seen the latest moves come from China, um, where the Chinese um, are, are, are looking at CPTPP in a new light. And, um, you know, perhaps you could end up in a, in a CPTPP arrangement uh, with China before the US in it. Um, so these are, let's say, the, the wider geopolitical dynamics which are underpinning these big movements right now um, um, in, in the international trade sphere. Um, but I wouldn't raise too many hopes when it comes to um, sealing an agreement with the, the US. I, I don't think that's in, on the cards. That's really that's really interesting. I guess that's sort of my last sort of... Sort of thing I'd wanted to cover with you Emily which is really about the sort of strategic choice for food and the UK strategic choices for for its food trade going forward and I sort of simplify in my own mind to see that there are sort of there are broadly sort of teams you can be on and we've obviously been on the EU sort of approach to how we see food regulation whether it's our approach to to to, to GM food um, or other kind of animal welfare standards and the like that are of a certain type within the EU I know from my experience before as in the Culture Federation that things like the US, if they were interested in trade with the UK, they are very clear about wanting to change. the. They want to see their approach to EU food rules 
being a, being more widely applied across the world, including in the UK, if they can do that. Um, and so there are some big choices to be made if we want to see our food trade restructure in terms of the balance of where we get our food from and, and how it's applied that we aren't really fronting up to decide which side we're on. Um, so how do you see that playing out? Do you see the UK making big changes to its regulatory structures for how it sees food production both in the UK and where it buys its food from or not? So again, uh, a great series of questions there, Shane. Um, <laughs> let, let's just start from the basics, right? Um, the, the UK is a food dependent country. It is not self-sufficient and therefore requires importation uh, of food um, to ensure that British have um, enough you know, nutrition. What we're going to see is, um, as, a, um, as a consequence of Brexit is quite a lot of uh, market substitution. Um, both um, in the UK domestically, you'll find uh, perhaps, you know, um, the, the, the price of lamb has gone down and the price of beef is going up. So maybe you'll have more families deciding that uh, a Sunday roast of lamb um, will replace the beef. So you'll find um, uh, intersectorial substitution. Mm-hmm. Additionally, you're going to find substitution, import substitution occur with regards to the provenance. So where you would have uh, probably supply, supplied yourself from the EU, you might decide to look uh, further afield because now essentially the administration and the administrative costs are the same. And you have, uh, you know, you might decide to look uh, further. Right. So more imports from third countries to the EU is also one of the elements that I would see um, trending soon. Now, when it comes to the regulatory uh, framework, um, it's quite interesting. I like to say that British consumers, um, they eat they eat their food like Americans in the sense mm-hmm. that they're very much um, food service oriented. Uh, if you look at just, you know, diet patterns and the way that the British consume, they're very different from Europe. But when it comes to the regulatory standards that at least society holds, um, holds uh, upholds, you find that they're very European. So the Brits, when it comes to the regulation and, for instance, the precautionary principle, for instance, is applied um, to, to food, you'll find that most British uh, people do agree with the European's regulatory regime, even though they might not perceive that that's where it's coming from. Um, yeah, I would go a step further than that, Emily. I mean, when, when Boris Johnson was talking on Christmas Eve about the deal and when he's been talking since, it's, as far as he's concerned, the reason we need to leave the EU is to make our standards even more strict than those that we had in the EU. And that just feels like a complete divergence from the opportunity of Brexit, which is to bring in more food from further afield that's produced different standards. So, I mean, that again, this gets into a much wider debate on what we call the the, the process and production methods. So how you produce food, not whether it's safe, right? Um, and, And this is a big debate in international trade today. Um, So what I've heard out of the British debate is a lot of focus on, for instance, um, the the carbon uh, emissions, the uh, animal welfare standards um, and so forth. Those are uh, production and process methods. 
mm-hmm. um, they, they don't tell you if the food is safe. They, they, they're much more qualifying as to how the food was produced. Now, you, you mentioned the regulatory environment. I don't see the UK selling out its regulatory environment uh, to align with the US anytime soon. Um, and I would add that, you know, the pressure that will come from the US, you don't need a trade agreement for that pressure to happen. It will happen anyway. If the US wants to open um, a dispute um, against the UK on, let's say, chlorinated chicken, hormone beef, it can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it can do so in the WTO, right? The, 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 I, I just don't think that that's necessarily what's going to happen. Um, however, I, I would put one caveat to that, is that we have seen that in the way that the UK negotiated the, the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, uh, whereas there was some very ambitious language on issues such as animal welfare, um, on uh, sustainable food systems, um, antimicrobial resistance, uh, all those topics which are very important to food safety, um, we didn't find um, a very strong, let's say, uh, mention to the precautionary principle as a sanitary and phytosanitary uh, principle, right? So we didn't find uh, those words, that principle included into that chapter, um, which which shows that the UK does still want to have some wiggle room when it comes to how such principles should be applied, how risk and science um, should uh, be underpinning um, regulatory decision-making. And, and you know, that's why we've launched a consultation on gene editing as a potential thing for the UK, which is obviously something that was anathema, or at least it, historically anathema within the EU's uh, frameworks. Um, so it's really interesting how that stuff's going to play out. I guess, sort of, um, obviously, as I think, Emily, the Cold Chain Federation, one of our big things is, is about how we help our industry to move on its path towards net zero. And you've already kind of mentioned the issues around carbon, inbuilt carbon in product and how we treat that going forward as part of our targets in those areas. How much do you think the conversation we're going to be having about trade and our food trade in particular in the next 10 years is going to be versed in what we, how we meet our, our carbon emission targets? Or do you think that they'll actually be sort of separated from that um, in, the, in, in, the, in the years ahead? There is no way of looking at trade without considering the climate um, uh, aspect of international trade today. It is going to be one of the biggest priorities, um, I think, around the world, be it from uh, the Brussels or Washington perspective. We're even seeing big commitments from China in that regard. Uh, um, I was reading yesterday what we have over 100 countries now that are now committed to uh, carbon neutrality. Um, So... This is going to be at the, 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 at the center of many discussions. Um, how is, is the big question. So if we're looking at uh, the big events and let's say dates of 2021, um, there are going to be two that I would put out uh, that will be relevant to trade. It is the COP26, which the UK will be hosting, yeah. right? And then on the other side, we also have the UN Food System Summit that will feed into COP26 in many regards when we're looking at food. Now, the UN Food System Summit will be integrating these questions of the carbon emissions of food um, and 
international trade. And I think that this is always a good opportunity to remind um, to remind everyone that it's not because your product is coming in from the other side of the world that it has a worse carbon emission than yeah. than if it was produced at home. And there are many examples of produce which uh, arrive in the UK uh, with a certain CO2 emission tag and then actually what um, what what has the highest uh, carbon emission in the farm to fork is actually the part where the the consumer goes to the retailer by car uh, buys the produce brings it back home and actually that has a higher co2 emission or, than the whole or, or production grow, and logistics or you grow the product in the uk in environments that require a little more energy to such to as greenhouses or, or less favorable climates also will have an impact on 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 your 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 uh, your emissions right um, so this will have a big uh, impact. Now, there's also another, um, I would say, initiative, which is that of the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is under uh, review right now at a European level. Um, what we're hearing so far on these carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which is basically, and I, I, I will get my hand slapped for saying this, a carbon tax at the border. Um, it's slightly more complex than that, um, but if it's easier to, to, to let's say, uh, perceive is that your product when being imported into the country or block applying the the border adjustment mechanism will pay a tax um, on the emissions um, if it hasn't done so in its domestic market, right? Now, Mm -hmm. for the moment, uh, these uh, mechanisms, be it in Brussels or also under consideration in discussions in Washington, in the way that they're being uh, considered, don't integrate food, right now because we understand you know the difficulty of applying these concepts to food how you calculate the carbon emission of a food product is actually very complex and that before it even hits the logistical um uh the the logistics of how it actually is moved around um for instance you know if you're just taking a piece of beef i mean how far do you go um in 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 assessing the emissions is it only the methane that has been produced by the cow or is it also you know the carbon emissions of the feed uh, that it's grazing on or or being fed uh, um throughout its life cycle right and 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 the land use impact of having that land used for pasture rather than something else so you've got the land use impact the indirect land use impact they're all pretty complex um issues that require strong methodology um, in order to actually make any advance at an international level. And I think those are going to be the big debates of tomorrow, for sure. Emily, that's fantastic. Um, I could talk about this for for hours, and I'm really, really fascinated by some of your answers to those questions. And I'll probably return to those in conversation with you in, in the future, if that's okay. Um, but um, I think we'll... Uh, come to an end there we've got well past the time i i I asked of you so thank you very much for that i've really enjoyed it um um, thank you very Very much much. thank you very much shane it's been a pleasure so there you have it that's the end of part two of our conversation with emily reese about brexit and then uk's new position in the global trading world it's really quite good to talk about the kind of bigger picture and the and the future because the grind of the last few uh, weeks has been felt, or I've certainly felt it, and I'm not actually the one doing the specific trade and regulatory compliance tasks that um, I'm seeing many of the members across the cold chain having to complete. Um, 
we do really need to think about sort of the more positive days ahead. And there will be positive days. You know, it, it, there are lots of reasons why exiting the single market is really bad news for the current ways in which we work. Um, and it's never going to be brilliant to have to complete the kinds of paperwork and jump the sorts of hoops that um, the, the, the being outside the single market dictates for European trade flows. But what Emily talks about there and what we just discussed are the ideas of how UK trade might start to rebalance in different ways. And that creates exciting opportunities for the cold chain, particularly on the storage side, um, particularly in the frozen chain, um, but also um, for uh, businesses that can find smart, intelligent ways to move product uh, between the UK and the European Union. Problems in logistics and businesses that are good at solving problems um, find their market. And I have no doubt that will be the case for the UK cold chain. From my point of view, I'll continue to keep making the case about the burdens that we're facing now, looking for those uh, solutions, um, trying to be practical, trying to look to the future and trying to make sure we're providing you with the best advice we can about what's happening today what's hap- and what's coming down the road tomorrow. So thank you very much for listening. I hopefully you found it uh, as interesting and insightful as I did. Um, and we've got some really great guests coming up. Um, not least we're talking um, later this week, I'm talking to Dean Atwell, the Managing Director of Oakland International, a really interesting um, business and a really interesting guy. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And we'll be doing more conversations um, around some of our core topics like the Net Zero Challenge. And I'm hosting um, a cold chain conversation in the middle of February, um, where we're bringing together some of the professors um, to talk about that challenge. Um, So if you want to see a a man out of his depth trying to keep up with some of the biggest brains in cold chain then that's definitely the event for you so i look forward to look out for details of that on the website as ever thanks very much for listening um please subscribe please tell your friends please spread the word about the cold chain podcast and so until next time please stay safe and i really look forward to talking with you again <laughs>